that's fun. I like starting wrong on the wrong foot. It's a simple reminder that no matter what you do, no matter how prepared you are, there's going to be something. Have you ever lived that part of your life? You had a presentation at work. You thought it was going to be great. And then you started and the notes didn't pull up. Or, you know, pick, pick any one of those scenarios. It's a horrible feeling. The same thing's true when you realize that you've been completely wrong about something, right? Have you ever lived that moment where one of your assumptions was challenged? Uh, I, I remember getting called out by a professor because I attributed something to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. <laughs> and he said, Matt, he never said that. And I'm like, yeah, he did, man. I've been quoting that for 10 years. No. No, he didn't. Sounded really great. Sounded in line with the guy, but it was completely wrong. And in that moment, you have two choices. You can stick with it, grit your teeth, and be like, I'm still right. Or you can admit, I was wrong. Say those tough words that, I'm sorry, and turn around. If you didn't notice it from this morning's text, it's tough. Uh, This passage has been nestled in my heart for a while. And uh, when Jay asked if I would preach, I was like, well, I think I'm going to go here. And he was like, oh, okay. That always makes you feel, you know, positive and encouraging. But this, this is tough words because as much as I'd love to tell you we've learned something since the people of Judah in Jeremiah's day, the truth that I think all of us are aware of is we haven't. Like, for example, let me, let me give you a thought process to get this whole thing started. I want you to finish this phrase. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. If you've ever tried to lead a large animal, you know the truth of that statement. Years ago when we lived outside El Dorado and Tawanda, we had a blind calf. It had gotten pink eye before it was vaccinated. A friend of ours gave it to us, and we were raising it. And one day, the guys who rented the pasture land around us used the corral, and they left a gate open. At which point, what did my blind calf do? He wandered off having a grand old time. He wouldn't come back when I rustled the feed bucket, didn't listen to the horn of my Jeep. I was like, well, this is bad. Ran back to the barn, grabbed a rope. And so I roped him and we were going to go back. Now, mind you, I am a large person. I'm aware of this. I did play college football and I have some strength. But for the record, I am not as strong as a calf that size at all. (laughs) And I'm roped him and I'm pulling. And when he'd get a mind to, he would start pulling back and I would just tuck my heels, hang out of that rope, be like, please stop, please stop, please stop. And he did. He never decided he'd have that head fully pulled because man, he could have drugged me till I let go of that rope and it would have been done. There was no hope for it. But after about two hours of pulling some and then he'd pull me back, we'd keep going He'd pull me back. We'd keep going. I finally get back to the corral and I put him in. I'm just like, (sighs) I was spent. The reason I tell you that is because as people, we're as hard to lead as that cow was for me. God's been telling us for years, heck, since the beginning, that he had a plan, that it was better than we could imagine, that we just needed to listen and obey. And I don't know if you look at the world today, but there is a lot of need for what God has told us in the midst of it. And that's why we're in Jeremiah 7. Because there is so much that speaks to today. Especially when you think about leadership. How many of you have ever searched Google for leading difficult people? Have you ever been there? 
I looked, just a cursory search at leading people who don't want to be led. And there are more articles out there from the Harvard Business Review, this and that and the other, than you'd imagine because it is a mark of the human condition. Part of that is leaders, we, we like to be liked. We don't want people upset with us. And so this is from the Harvard Business Review and a guy named Martin Moore, but he said this, the sooner you accept that you cannot please everyone, the better. For every decision you make, and this includes giving tough feedback, there will be someone who thinks you should have made a different one. As a leader, it's your job to listen to everyone. Give them the respect you want to receive. But in the end, all things considered, you do what you believe is right. Although it can be disconcerting to realize that not everyone agrees, it's also strangely liberating. If you accept that you can't please everybody, it clears the path to do what you think is right, not what's popular. Because popularity doesn't matter. Doing the right thing does. Or as Steve Jobs was quoted, if you want to make everyone happy, don't be a leader. Sell ice cream, right? Keep it, keep it easy. And Jeremiah here in our text is making the hard choice. Because I don't know how many of you remember our buddy Jonah. When God asked him to go say something, he's like, peace. Ran as far in the opposite direction as he could until God caught him. Jeremiah doesn't do that. Jeremiah makes the hard choice to do what is right over what will be popular. And if you know his story, or if you want to skip ahead when we get home, read Jeremiah 26. He preaches this same message, basically, and it gets really interesting for him because he was making the right choice, not the popular choice. Because he speaks the word and he confronts it head on. If you heard in our text there, he's at the gate of the temple. Now, historians tell us there were seven, so he's not at all of them. That's impossible. He's not God. But he's stationed at one of the gates, and he is saying this as all the people are coming to worship in the temple. You know, in real estate, they say it's all about location, location, location. Jeremiah's got the location where God told him to go. And he's going to confront every single person who walks through those doors with their erroneous ideas about God, what he said, and what he actually meant. That's not a tough place. That's not an easy place to be. That's a really tough spot. But it gave him a large audience. And Jeremiah is clear to tell us it's not his message. He's just the faithful mouthpiece telling what God has said. So let's hear those words again. This is from the, the Christian Standard Bible, and it says this. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the house of the Lord, and there call out this word. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who enter through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Correct your ways and your actions, and I will allow you to live in this place. Don't trust deceitful words. Chanting, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place, or follow other gods, bringing harm on yourselves, I will allow you to live in this place, the land I gave to your ancestors long ago and forever. But look, you keep trusting in deceitful words that cannot help. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known? And then, 
Do you come and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, we're rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers in your view? Yes, I too have seen it. This is the Lord's declaration. I don't know about you, but those words hurt. Why? Because I think if any of us are honest, we see ourselves right there. Yes, I'm not burning incense to Baal. No, I have not sacrificed any of my children to another god or something like that. But if I'm honest, everything Jeremiah is accusing the people of Judah, that fits my bill too. And that is hard because this text, it's that proverbial glove to this face smack that they did when they challenged somebody to a duel. <laughs> it's, it's throwing down the gauntlet. And God is calling his people to something. As you see, the big, big chunk of this, God says, correct your ways and your actions. And I'll allow you to live in this place. Correct your ways and your actions. He's not telling them something new. It's a simple message. Repent. John the Baptist, when he came to prep the way for Jesus, he had basically that one word message for all of Israel. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. That's what Jeremiah is saying to the people of Judah. We need to repent. We need to turn around from where we've been. And the why is he'll allow them to continue to live in this place. Because evidently the people have forgotten Deuteronomy 7, where God told them what to happen for them to continue living in the land and the blessings of obedience. That simple word at the end. Obedience. Because God told them, if you follow my law, if you listen and are careful to keep these ordinances. The Lord your God will keep his covenant loyalty with you as he swore to your ancestors. He'll love you, bless you, and multiply you. Notice, God doesn't say, I'm always going to do this. There's that word at the front, if. The people of Judah had forgotten that completely. Instead, you know where they placed their trust? So I love the passage Austin read because that's the thing. They were trusting in the strength of their own hands what they had done. In fact, their trust was simply in the fact that the temple was in Jerusalem. They were good. They were golden. God's presence lived there. Surely, surely nothing bad could ever happen to them because of that. The temple had become their visible reminder and protective power. But divorced from a faith that follows that God, it became a protective charm or a talisman. Like, think the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel. You see the Israelites hauling it out there because they're like, hey, God's going to do his thing and we're good. We don't have to obey or nothing. It's, it's okay. And then in Samuel, you know what happens? The Philistines whomp them and take the Ark. And then God does his thing and the Philistines are like, send it back, send it back. But we have this temptation to misplace our hope. We want to misplace our hope because it allows us to create a faith that is comfortable. And that's the big deal. That's the key point this morning. Confidence in anything other than the finished work of Christ is misplaced hope and is a counterfeit faith. I'm sorry. There's no other way to say that. It's anything other than the finished work of Christ. That can be whatever it is, and we'll cover a lot of options here that come from our text but anything other than what Jesus has done for us is putting our hope in something that doesn't deserve it and is creating a faith that is not real. 
And that's a tough place. The Israelites had faith. They had faith God wasn't going to desert them. They were good. But they weren't. Micah 3. He sums up the situation here. Listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and prefer everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. Her priests teach for payment and her prophets practice divination for silver. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. Do you see where their faith is? It's in the right God. They believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who parted the Red Sea, led them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He lived in the temple. We're good. God's not going to let his house be worked over by these enemies. Because in context, this is just the people of Judah that are hearing Jeremiah's message. Israel, it's already been wiped off the face of the earth because Samaria and the other half of the kingdom, when it split... They didn't listen to God. And God's punishment came on those people. Judah's just like, eh, yeah, but they didn't have the temple. Eh. Is it easy to put our faith in something like that where it's going to be okay because we've got this? It's painful to think about. But here's the background on this. The Tyndale Commentary did a heck of a job laying this out there. They wrap it up kind of with a bow. Not merely had God promised an everlasting dynasty to David, But he'd also chosen Zion as his earthly abode. Therefore, if God was to be true to himself, no possible harm could overtake his dwelling place or any who sheltered in it. The false prophets fully believed that in an emergency, God would intervene directly to save Zion, his sacred mount. For them, therefore, temple worship was little better than a charm for averting evil, and they had beguiled the people into trusting in material buildings Forgetful that God required living persons as his temple. Again, consider the context of these words. These are the people of Judah going to worship. They're going to do the right thing. Their faith is still in the God of their fathers, in Yahweh. But their faith was that as long as we believe, we give an intellectual assent to this, we're okay. God won't let anything happen to us. But the truth is, God wasn't interested in their intellectual assent or anything else, and he lays it all out here. But I want you to see the sheer depth of their faith in verse 4. Because there's a huge thing at the end of that. They repeat something three times. He says this repetitive chant, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Can you think of anywhere else in Scripture that threefold repetition is used? I can think of one we sing. It's a hymn. Actually, it was hymn number one in the hymnal I used in the Presbyterian church. Holy, holy, holy. When Isaiah sees God in chapter 6, that's what's said. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's about fullness, completion. It's eternal. It's absolute. So when we say that about God's holiness, there is nothing to be added to it. There's nothing you can take away from it. It's perfect. The Israelites are taking the same thought process and applying it to the fact that because God lives in this temple, we're okay. Their faith in that 
is absolute. It's unshakable because they have been taught, they have been led by false prophets to believe the easy option, not God's option. And so maybe you don't know, probably preaching to the choir here, but religion doesn't equal faith. In fact, I can go to McDonald's or I should probably tell you I'm going to go to Wendy's because it's new and open again and everybody's crowding there. I keep, it's amazing when I drive by. But if I go to Wendy's and I buy a hamburger, does that make me a hamburger? Pretty, pretty simple answer, right? <laughs> of course not, Matt. It makes your waistline a little larger. But the truth is true of other things. I can go to church, I can say the right words, I can believe the right things, but it doesn't make me a Christian. It doesn't make me a follower of Christ. It means I understand religion. I understand the trappings and the context of what I want. It's that intellectual ascent. C.S. Lewis said 18 inches was the longest distance in the world. It's from here to there. We can ascend to anything. We can make our context work. But that's why the next word is so pivotal in our text. It says instead. I love that in the CSB. Instead. He's creating a contrast, which if you notice all the screens are that red and white, there's a huge contrast between the two. God says instead to contrast between what is and what should be. He says instead, if you really correct your ways and your actions, if you act justly toward one another, if you no longer oppress the resident alien, the fatherless, the widow, and no longer shed innocent blood in this place or follow other gods bringing harm on yourselves, he's contrasting what they are doing with what he's called them to do. In fact, I'm going to quote a lot of Deuteronomy right now for you because every single thing there, God told his people. And, you know, Micah actually contextualized some of that. He said, you know, O Israel, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The same context is here. Act justly towards one another. Deuteronomy 16.20 says, pursue justice and justice alone, so you'll live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. The next one, don't oppress the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Deuteronomy 24, 17 says, do not deny justice to a resident alien or fatherless child. And don't take a widow's garment as security. Not shedding innocent blood. Deuteronomy 19, 10 says, in this way, innocent blood will not be shed and you will not become guilty of bloodshed in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And following other gods. That goes back to Exodus. That's one of the big ones. Exodus 20, 3 through 6 says, don't have any other gods besides me. Don't make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under. Don't bow and worship to them and don't serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. That's, that is a lot of stuff that's painful. Because Israel was breaking every single one of these things God had said, and they said, I'm good. It's because the truth is religious actions and observances without faith are form without substance. Religious actions and observances without faith are form without substance. It's like me dumping water into a mold and deciding it's going to stay the minute I pull the mold away. 
The water goes back to exactly the shape that it was. We're going to go back to my earlier analogy. It's what happened when I pulled that calf towards me. We were good until he decided to pull back. I could have faith. Yeah, I'm going to get him there. No. Our actions and observances without an actual faith, it's outrageous nonsense. It has no basis in reality. It's comfortable. And it's easy. It's a whole lot easier for me to tell you, check off these boxes and you're good. I mean, right? Isn't that what we all want? We just want a simple checklist that if I do X, Y, Z, I'm set. God knows that about us, and he's given us several simple checklists. One of those would be what we just read from part of the commandments. There's ten. Ten things. God's like, here's ten highlights, man. Can you all focus on ten? The Israelites were going once, going, nope, nope, sorry, we can't manage. Micah shows up, he's like, let's try three. Instead of ten, let's go to three. And the Israelites are like, ah, shucks, couldn't couldn't manage that. Can you you do better? And then Jesus shows up, and he's like, I'm just going to go down to two. Can you focus on two? Two two enough? And what was our answer? Eh, (laughs) that's that's still asking a bit much. Telling me to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself? Not sold on that. That's our human nature. We don't want to be led by God. Just like Adam and Eve, we would rather be God. And we put ourselves up in that place thinking we know better. It's what Judah was doing. They thought they knew better than that. And that's the second truth. Belief in the right things without corresponding actions isn't orthodoxy. And I'm going to parse some words here, and it's going to get a little bit heavy for a minute. Orthodoxy is right belief. Okay, ortho, which is the right, and doxy, belief. Orthodox beliefs don't make you a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. I'm sorry. You can have the perfect theology, the correct framework to hang things on. In fact, you can be an author of a systematic theology that is astounding. But it doesn't mean that you have faith. It doesn't mean that you have the right faith. In fact, in this case, and in many of those, we see what God has called us to do, and we do the opposite. That's what the Israelites are tracking with. And at this point in time, I guarantee you, most of these Jews in Judah would tell you their faith was in Yahweh. But was anything they were doing matching that idea? No. I guarantee you they knew the law. In fact, what we know from how Jewish kids were trained, most boys had most of the Torah, the first five books, memorized. I mean, how how many of us have that? I'm like, oh, wait, no, 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 not me. I'm I'm lucky to have the few things I do have in my brain memorized. And I don't know, but as, as a guy who preaches and has stood in the pulpit, the absolute worst moment is when you go to say the Lord's Prayer and you blank. Just, just sharing here. That's, that's all you're like, our Father who art and What's the next part? You know, have you been there? We're human. That happens. But choosing is a different thing. Because here we've got Judah breaking commandments 8, 6, 7, 9, 1, and 2. In case you're counting, that is uh, that's 6 out of 10. Six out of ten commandments that it, Jeremiah just laid out for him. He's like, these are all here. Do you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known? 
He's just checking off the 10. He's like, well, we're at six out of 10. And I guarantee you, if God really felt like it, he could have tacked on the other four. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's get real. Because that's, that's the way it is. I, I, I think, oh, I'm doing good. I checked off these boxes. I'm a, no, no, I'm breaking them all. And that's the thing. You're coming to worship. And he says, then, after doing all this, do you come and stand before me in this house that bears my name and say, we're rescued so we can continue doing all these detestable acts? <clears throat> As the New American Commentary put it, they felt no shame about breaking the moral laws of God and then coming to stand in the temple that bore God's name. There they would say, we're safe. They believed that observing the temple rituals freed them to return to their detestable things without fear of punishment. I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like the old, I go to church on Sunday to make up for Monday through Saturday. If you know people who did that, did you do that? I know there was a time in college, I was so lost I couldn't even begin to tell you. But I thought I was good. I thought I was great. Because man, my safety and my security was in what I believed. I, did, I was fine. My actions didn't matter. Salvation didn't in what I do. That's a fat lie the devil has sold us for years. Yes, my salvation is in grace alone, faith alone, through Christ alone, is revealed in his word alone for the glory of God. But you know what? I still have to do something about my faith. Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. This isn't saying you're going to do things to earn your way to heaven. But that third truth is that doing something matters. And I'm going to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer because I already mentioned him earlier. He's one of my favorite theologians. And as it ties into the movie that's coming tonight, he was part of the Third Reich and he fought against it. In fact, despite being a pacifist, he joined an attempt to assassinate Hitler. But one of his most influential books is called The Cost of Discipleship. If you haven't read it, I'm going to tell you, it's probably the single most influential thing for me outside of Scripture. Because what does it do? It confronts me. And here's the quote. Cheap grace is an intellectual assent to the idea that there is remission of sins found in the cross of Christ. But it's justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. It is not a gift of God. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. It is grace without the cross. What we give ourselves and tell ourselves that I'm okay, that's not grace. The same thing holds true. You're not supposed to beat yourself up over what you have confessed and given back to God. His cross is sufficient. His cross is enough and his forgiveness is true. But see, the thing about the cross, it doesn't justify my sin. It never does. It calls me to account for my sin because my sin cost Jesus, the sinless son of God, who was the perfect lamb, his life. And his blood on that cross bought me back from the sin that forced him to go there. Grace is the fact that God loved me enough to define me not by my failures, but by what his son had done. That's why in Corinthians, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is that synopsis of the gospel that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Grace is justification of me, a sinner, knowing who I am. Not justification of my sins that necessitated justification. That's why in Jesus' story about the sinner and tax collector versus a Pharisee in the temple, you've got the sinner and tax collector. He prays on his knees and in shame. He says, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Then the Pharisee stands up on the other side and says, God, thank you that I am not like this man, a sinner. Jesus told them that one of them was justified that day. And I'll tell you the hard part. Our religious actions and beliefs don't make it justifiable. I believe the right things, but does it mean anything? Because that's the simple truth. Orthodoxy or right belief doesn't actually exist without orthopraxy, which is right practice. That's why you've got orthodoxy plus orthopraxy. In fact, I'm going to tell you, you are not an orthodox believer in Jesus if you aren't doing what Jesus said. Oh, I said that out loud. It's, it's freeing because here's the other truth. I'm not an orthodox believer in Jesus when I don't do the right things either. But I have been justified by the Jesus who came and died in my place. My works will never get me anywhere. My right things that I want to do, and that's this, this next point. Some of y'all resonate, some of you won't. But doing the right things without a saving faith is lipstick on a pig, y'all. Yes, that was in my sermon notes. You can write it down. It's lipstick on a pig if you're doing the right things without saving faith. Because there are lots of people who believe that what they're doing is enough. It's not enough. When Jesus summarized it down to two commandments, he left the stinking hardest possible assignment ever. I don't know about you, but the toughest thing for me to do is to follow the first commandment. To love the Lord my God with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength, all of my being. Because the truth is, I think I know better. And I do so regularly, just like the people of Judah did. I have confidence in what I'm doing. I have confidence in what I believe. But does that save me? No. It doesn't do anything for me except mean I know some good stuff. It's lipstick on a pig. That's why this passage is what's quoted when Jesus goes into the temple. When Jesus goes into the temple, makes a whip, and drives everybody up on out of there. You know, it's easy for people to quote, you know, saying that you're going to do what Jesus does means beating people out of the temple is not out of the realm of possibility. But verse 11, is this house which bears my name become a den of robbers in your view? Then God says, yes, I too have seen it. The context is this. The region of Judah is full of hills, mountains, and places people could hide. What people would do is they would go hide in these caves which sounds familiar. I know a guy named David who did that hiding from Saul, right? But they'd go hide in the caves until the pursuers gave up searching for them. Then they'd emerge to commit other crimes. They would come out and do the same thing they'd done once it passed over. For the people of Judah, the temple had become the refuge for the people to perform the rituals 
they believed freed them to continue their wicked practices. It's taking that grace for myself, not allowing it to be given to me. And it doesn't work for us. That's why Jesus quotes us when he gets in the temple. What were the people of Israel doing when Jesus rolls up into the temple? Anybody know the context here? What they were doing, everybody had to bring a sacrifice to the temple. It had to be perfect and blameless, without spot or blemish. And what the priests and the other religious leaders were doing is they would tell people, sorry, your sacrifice ain't up to snuff. But we've got one you can buy right over here at the lovely lamb store. And so you've got people who were coming to worship God to do what they needed to do, being told, well, you can't because yours ain't good enough. But for a small fee or exorbitant price, we'll give you this one that is good enough. And that's what they were doing. Jesus walks in and sees this, sees the people who are supposed to lead his people making their money off their backs. I mean, yeah, they were living their best lives now right up in there, making plenty of cash money, and they were good because they believed the right things. They did the right things. Might cheat people a little bit on the side, but they were okay. Jesus' response to that? (laughs) He was indignant. He quotes this passage, and he makes a whip out of ropes and drives them all up out of there, throwing their tables and the money everywhere because he was mad at what they had done. They put up a wall between his father and the people who were called by his name. And that's never okay. It was making grace a purchase. And I'm just losing this mic left and right this morning, y'all. So you got to hang with me. Maybe if I pull and tweak. There we go. Don't worry, Casey. I swear the volume's going to be at a normal level sometime. But they're doing that the same way that people choose to neuter God's word today. You don't get to pick and choose. The whole thing is the word of God or none of it is the word of God. Let's, let's get real, church. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, you don't get to pick and choose the parts of the Bible we like. Because if we did that, it gets real messy in a hurry. I, I love the parts that I can take and claim as my own. Graduation season as a youth pastor for 20 years, I despised The sheer number of things that popped up. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. To give you hope in the future. Absolutely true, but so ridiculously out of context. I'm like, so what we're planning is that they're going to be captured by the Babylonians and told, hey, y'all ain't going home for a long time. Because that's your context of that verse. God's telling him, you're going to die here in Babylon. But don't worry, good is coming. That's a whole lot less warm and fuzzy right there, isn't it? We want to take those parts of Scripture we like. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Where'd Paul write that? In jail? After being whooped? That's that's not my idea of what I want to have to have God's strength for. I used to quote that before football games. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go kill somebody now. And That's not okay. It wasn't then. It still isn't now. We're taking God and we're using him for ourselves the same way the temple was used in Judah. Oh, it's my cover to do what I want to do. Or as the people in Jesus' time did. Today, we are still facing the same challenges that they are facing. In 1937, H. Reinhold Niebuhr famously said this, 
A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That was him summarizing liberal theology in the late 30s. It's what we want. We don't want the tough parts. We don't want to be challenged to have to change. We want to be coddled into comfort and allowed to sit. But the Word of God doesn't do that. And this idea is that a social gospel brings salvation. We check off all the right boxes and we're good. Think the rich young ruler. He said all of the commandments he'd followed since his youth. He was doing the right stuff. He believed it. What did Jesus tell him? You give away everything. Come follow me. And what happens? He goes away sad because he had many possessions. People will take that text and say, see, that's why you need to give away your money to the poor. You, you can't be having stuff because you're not following Jesus. I'll tell you something, church. That's not a universal prescription, but it is. What do I mean? Simple. Jesus was pointing out the fact that the rich young ruler had something other than God on the throne of his life. It was his stuff. It had nothing to do with the fact that he was wealthy or that he had wealth. That's completely irrelevant. Except for the fact that the wealth was his God. And Jesus cut to the heart of the issue and he said, we're going to give away everything that gives you comfort so that you can be who you're supposed to be. And the man couldn't do it. And he went away sad. Scripture tells us Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Why? The guy knew it. He had all of this, but it hadn't connected here. See, the thing is, it's way off target if we want to make it about something other than what is on the throne of your life. Because that first commandment that I said I struggle with, that's the hardest thing to do. Give absolutely everything of yourself to the service of what God has called you to be. The math is simple at the end. Faith equals salvation. Every time, all the time, no matter what. But you know what? We have a habit of adding something to it where faith plus works equals salvation. No, faith saves you. And faith alone. The works are a result of your salvation. It's because God changed you that you do the things he did. And here's the freedom. We're going to get to the freedom at the end. I want to read you a part of the message because I think Eugene Peterson nails it when he talks about faith and works. He says this uh, from James 2. But if you see someone... Oh, yeah, there we go. I was like, man, that's all good, RJ. I was like, did I not cut the whole passage? Because I can do that. But he looks at him and says, dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup? Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds great. You take care of the faith, I'll take care of the works. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith, fit together hand in glove. Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God? 
but then observes you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that. But what good does it do them? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hands? Now here's the truth, church. Faith saves you. It's not what you do. It is never about what you do because otherwise, as R.C. Sproul said, he was really kind of afraid of heaven because if it was about works, he'd have to listen to people bragging about how they got there. It ain't that way. It's what Jesus did for us. That's all that matters. But the works are us living like Jesus. Because the cross, the cross frees us to imitate Christ. That's why at baptism, when we take somebody and we dunk them under the waters, we talk about them dying to their old life and being raised to walk in newness of life. What we do is an outshoot of what we actually believe. And that can be painful, just like it was for the people of Judah. Are my words and my actions lining up? Because that freedom from the cross, that freedom to imitate Christ, it's what it all boils back down to. The finished work of Jesus frees us to do what we could not. Be imitators of Christ. Because that's from the beginning what God was pushing towards. People who looked like him. People who were in a cruciform image. The people of Israel didn't get it. Everything God did. Heck, summarize the book of Leviticus in a sentence. Be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Are you good at that? <laughs> Hi, my name's Matt. I'm really bad at that. I get mad. I get frustrated. I sin. My works do not always line up with my mouth. But here's the truth. I know that. And I trust absolutely that when Jesus told me to confess my sin to him, and he'd be faithful and just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, that's a faithful and true statement because his blood was enough. And his blood that covered me brings me salvation and makes me the righteousness of Christ. And the good news, church, it does the same for you. His blood covers your sin and makes you right. I don't know about all of y'all, but as, as a kid growing up in youth groups in the 90s, there's a quote from Brennan Manning that is etched across my consciousness. If you listen to the track, it starts with a slight bit of static. It's like, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today are Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Another crackle in this sort of the info, boom, beep, for what if I stumble from DC Talk. That quote's etched across my brain and has been forever because absolutely true. You know who runs people away from Jesus faster than anybody else? Those of us who believe the right things. Those of us who have all of this, but have never connected it here. We have faith in something that's not faithful. We've misplaced our hope and chosen a counterfeit to the real truth of the gospel. 
And today, church, don't settle for something less than what God has given you. True hope. And that true hope comes that the finished work of Christ is more than sufficient for our salvation and grace. And a true faith, believing in the name of Jesus and his saving work and confessing him with our mouths and lives so the world can see. That's what it comes down to. And so my challenge to you this morning is this. I don't know how God's word has convicted you and twisted your heart to make you hurt. I know how it twisted in mine. And so my call to you is this this morning. If you need to repent this morning, turn. Follow Jesus. Not because it's what you can do, but because it's what Jesus did for you. That is freedom. It's not about what you can do. It's about what God is doing in you. And that changes everything. Maybe this morning you don't know the Jesus. You're like, man, Matt, you're a psycho. Yes, I am. (laughs) Thanks for noticing. But the truth is simple. God's word is living and active, and it's there to penetrate your heart because there's only one God of the universe. The simple truth is you ain't it. The sooner you get to that point, the easier your life's going to be because then you begin to see the rest of it trickle down. If you're not the God of life, you're not responsible for everything. The only responsibility you have is when Jesus Christ says, come, follow me, saying yes and taking that step. Scripture's clear. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It doesn't say might, could, kind of. You will. Because it's about what Jesus did for us on the cross that gives us hope. It's what Jesus did that covers my sin and makes me new that gives me a reason to be excited. It's because what Jesus did, not what I do, but because of what Jesus did, I do what I do. And I do what I think I cannot. Because it's about what he did, his glory, his renown, and his kingdom coming here today in Great Bend, Kansas, just as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you never leave us alone. That even when you abandoned us to our own despicable desires and the things we did that brought us shame, even then you didn't leave us alone, but you made a way for us. This morning, I pray that you would call our hearts, lay on us a calling to repent if we're believing in anything, if we've placed our hope anywhere other than your finished works. Convict us of that and help us repent and confess. Lead us to a true faith based in the hope that is you and you alone. And this morning, Father, we pray above all else that you would turn our hearts to you so that we could look like you in the freedom you've given through the grace that you give so freely, but to cost you so, so much. Don't let us leave here the same today, but change us. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.